Welcome to Pacific Drift with Jason and myself, John. This is a podcast about the communities, cultures, and languages in the Pacific. Jason and I are two linguists working from Auckland, and we go out and look at different Pacific islands and talk about them. Today, we are going to Nauru. That's right. Going to Nauru, the Republic of Nauru, formerly Pleasant Island. Pleasant, very pleasant. Yeah. I feel like it probably was formerly pleasant. That's right, for various reasons. We'll get into that. So, Nauru is um, in, well, where is it? I think it counts as Micronesia. Micronesia, Uh, sweet. Um, It's about 50 kilometers south of the equator, so it must be quite warm. Yeah, yeah. Um, It is 21 kilometers squares uh, squared of island, um, but it's just basically a round oval yeah, it's island. it's not like a set of atolls, right? Yeah. And what's weird about it is there's this like strip around the coast that is all quite nice and, you know, beautiful, about 150 to 300 meters. And then it kind of goes up a bit and then there's all this other stuff. Yeah. What's the other stuff? Well, this is the weird thing. I don't, <laughs> I don't really know. It's it, called phosphate. Yeah, it's phosphates. Right, but, yeah. Like, I don't really know what that is. Well, it's minerals okay yeah it's like bird droppings <laughs> that, that was a, so yeah, the other the primary economy of nauru for a very long time was based on bird droppings wow and these <laughs> these things were mined these phosphates were mined um for a very long time can you imagine your job on your passport being i dig up bird droppings i think that um they don't put your job on your passport and also it's Phosphate mining. So phosphate, what I understand is it's used for um, fertilizers yeah. and explosives. Yeah. And so everyone loves them. Yeah. Super important. Yeah. Unless they're mining phosphates in your backyard. Yeah. So this is where it gets tricky, isn't it? Yeah. Basically, for the last, you know, 70, 100 years, maybe more. Did you say 70, 100? I said 70 or 100. I'm not oh, quite okay. sure. Yeah. Um, they've just been mining the hell out of Nauru. That's right. Strip mining. Like just completely destroying the environment, ripping up all the topsoil, just getting in there and getting all that phosphate out. Yeah. I think that the, the British started this industry like way back when. I think Nauru started as a, a German colony. Oh, classic. But they had allowed the British to come in and yeah. do this kind of mining. So it's been going on for a very, very long time. And you're right. The, the island is essentially destroyed now. Well, this is where it gets super interesting for me. Please tell me more. Well, so they've obviously destroyed the island. And at the time, this is where it gets kind of tricky because all the different countries had a claim to the ownership of this this island, Um, you know, including England, Germany and Australia. Well, Australia basically at some point was like, ah, in about 70 years, this would have taken it to 2019 so i think this was back in the 19 early 1950s they said there's going to be no phosphate anymore yeah we've destroyed the island in 70 years it's going to have no phosphate and there's going to be a whole load of people sitting on this island without really much left yeah so, so they knew this back in they the knew 50s this. yeah 
they absolutely knew what was going, what they were doing, what how much destruction they were doing. But they they decided Australia decided, okay, well we'll resettle the Nauruans. Um, so they said, okay, we'll resettle them. And um, I think the idea was, oh, we're doing a good thing. But, but it probably there's some kind of idea that it was probably more to make a claim on the rest of the phosphate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, this island is ours. So we're going to kick everyone off to somewhere else and then we get to just absolutely destroy this island. Yeah, how did the islanders feel about well, that? this was the interesting thing. So they, they looked around different places and um, they settled on this place called Curtis Island. It's off Queensland. Mm-hmm. It's roughly the same size, but it's much, um, I don't know whether you'd say it was nicer. It's got better environmental things. So it's got um, freshwater streams and stuff like that, okay. which Nauru doesn't. Um, it's got lots of forestry and topsoil and stuff like that, which of course Nauru now doesn't. Yeah. And it's roughly the same size, and it was currently owned by a few different private, you know, landowners. And the Australian government said, okay, we're going to just buy it from these private landowners, and we're going to move all Nauruans over there. And this is where it kind of gets tricky. So they took a bunch of Nauruans over to see it, and one of the things they said while they were touring was, hey, just don't tell anyone who you are. Because you're probably going to have a bit of a negative uh, response. What? So they pretended that they weren't Nauruans coming to check out this potential new place. What did they pretend? Well, exactly. I mean, it's outrageous. And, and it's not exactly a, hey, we're really keen to have you. And then they find out that some of the Curtis Islanders were threatening to punch the Nauruans when they came Okay. I mean, like, it's just stupid. It's just completely... It, wait, so it was inhabited? It was inhabited by a few, yeah, Australians who were clearly quite racist. Okay. So already there was a bit of a negative feel to this whole idea. And it kind of possibly gets worse. So Australia was willing to have the Nauruans come. And they can, uh, you know, do their own sort of a few little things and they can control their own community. But essentially, they're Australian now. Oh. So the Nauruans were like, uh, sorry, we're, we're okay with the idea of moving. In fact, one guy named his, his kid Curtis because they were so hyped about this whole thing. Oh, really? But the idea was that they were going to move and they were going to have a sovereign state that was sort of related to Australia, okay. but not Australia. And it, essentially, this is where it all broke down, because Australia said, nah, they had you're different Australians. expectations. Yeah. Oh, wow. And part of this all was, you know, the Nauruans were like, well, we have to preserve our identity yeah. as people, as a people, as a group, as a, you know, as a culture. And it sounds kind of more like you're trying to integrate us into the Australian Australia. society and yeah. group. And so it was a really tricky situation, but eventually it fell through, despite the fact that Australia was going to pay for this whole situation. Mm-hmm. Um, but it fell through because, well, they didn't want to be just taken and put somewhere and dumped there because... Well, I mean, that's completely understandable, right? Uh, you know, you have a, a group with their own identity, their own history, their own language... And they're pretty isolated from everybody else in the Pacific. Now, I can follow that discussion up by continuing 
with the mining, Ooh, so the phosphate okay. mining, right? So they they ripped the island apart with the mining, and at some point, I think in the 1990s, they decided, okay, we have used up all of the phosphates. Really? Here. Yeah, really? yeah. We have exhausted the resources. We're out of here. Yeah. Until like quite recently, yeah. I think that they um, had discovered more. Oh God! And they said, "Oh boy! Oh no! We're going back in because um, we've got thirty years more phosphates no. in here." Yeah, so they've restarted that. Of course, is that's, this is this Australia or is this just European countries? Uh, that just to, have... to be honest, I don't know exactly who is doing it because I don't I just, think Nauru is getting much benefit from this. No, no, exactly. It's getting no benefit, and it's. Yeah. Being being ripped apart yeah. and it's suffering from environmental destruction and cultural destruction wow. and yeah everything so it's really quite unpleasant yeah so of course this is a place that has struggled with um, making money okay it's struggled yep. with its economy it's suffered the effects of this mining. Yeah. So, and it's one of the smallest countries in the world. Is it? it, it it's a sovereign nation. It's part of the UN now. Yeah. And, but it is one of the smallest. I think it's the third smallest in terms of area oh, and maybe yeah. the, the second smallest in terms of population. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. So, how do you make money? Um, they've tried various things outside of the phosphate yeah. mining. So for a while, they were a tax haven. No way. <laughs> yeah. No way. And um, along with that, they sort of became an area for money laundering. <gasps> yeah. Wait, so and you could just roll up there. You, you say you're doing some legit business and actually you're just making bad money into good money. I guess so. Amazing. Yeah. Well, I don't know that you call it bad money into good, but yeah. And there's there's very few tourists there. It's one yeah. of the nations with the lowest tourism in the world. Yeah. So I think last year or something, there was maybe only 200 tourists. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, not a lot. Yeah. So, how you know, again, how do you make money? Well, another way was they were um selling passports diplomatic no, passports really yeah yeah how but, much uh, can i, I think, buy one uh, i think it was like thirty thousand dollars <gasps> that's not even like that much so wait what what does it give you a diplomatic passport well you're a diplomat of now no yeah. can i buy one i want to be a diplomat um i don't know oh. is it kind of like a little bit dodgy well, you tell me. <laughs> it doesn't sound particularly, like, above board. Yeah. But still, can you imagine me, John the Diplomat? You probably shouldn't. Okay. Anyway, um, <laughs> one of the, the bigger money-making ventures that they've gone into is yeah. actually um, using their place in the UN. So... For areas that have a desire to become recognized as yeah. sovereign states, what you need is UN support. Okay. So you need essentially support from member nations in the UN. Oh, okay. So this becomes a pretty tricky business and it involves money. So no. one instance of this yeah. is Russia in their conflict with Georgia. Yeah. And with the areas of Abkhazia and South Ossetia. Okay. So those are Georgian areas. Yeah. 
Russia's interest is to see those areas become Russian free of Georgia. Oh, I see. And that goes back to the war that Russia and Georgia were involved in. Yeah. I've seen some places refer to it as a punitive war. Yeah. And so Russia was looking to lobby small no. nations in the UN that could lend their support by recognizing Abkhazia and South Ossetia as sovereign, yeah, essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, they, they they paid Nauru for that. No way. So they actually went out there and they said to Nauru, which is a sovereign state, hey, here's a heap of cash. Can you do what we want with this other sovereign state or to make this place a, a sovereign state? Exactly. So it was something like $50 million <laughs> in humanitarian aid. No. Yeah, yeah. That's insane. Okay, now this this business of recognizing states gets even more complex. Okay. okay. So the whole reason why Nauru is involved in this is because they previously recognized Kosovo and Taiwan as independent states. Yeah. For uh, that, I don't know whether it was for money, but they then turned this into a profit-making <laughs> exercise. Yeah. So in 2002, yeah. China uh, gave them $130 million no. to come along and de-recognize Taiwan. No. <laughs> no way. Yep. And they took the money. Yeah. And then in 2005, they took more money to re-recognize Taiwan. You are joking. So they are just playing the two sides. Yeah. Against each other, essentially. Yep. That is insane. So they actually turned this into a business. <laughs> is that dodgy? Is that like... I I think so. I feel like that's kind of sus. Yeah. I mean, I think that, yeah, you're basically involving money into the politics of sovereign nations. I love that. using the UN in order to leverage all of this. So I love that. I don't love it so and much. And you know what I really love is that they went, okay, we're going to recognize Taiwan. And then someone paid them more and they were like, okay, we're going to de-recognize Taiwan. And then they got paid on the other side again. They were like, yeah, Taiwan's real. Yeah. Insane. Okay, now to shift gears just a little bit, I think that you've been doing a little bit of research on Fish. I have. And you've been giggling about all this fishy business, so I want to hear about it. Okay, we kind of got to go back a bit. So this is pre-phosphate mining, pre-trading um, off money from different countries, pre-moving to Curtis Island, all of that kind of is stuff. Is it pre-contact? Yes. Ah. We're, we're pre-contact. And this is where it gets super interesting because there's these fish. They're born in the ocean, or sort of near the ocean. This is where it gets tricky. Um, and they're tiny. They're about a centimetre long when they're born. But they can grow into absolute monsters. So we're talking 1.5 metres long. <laughs> we're talking 15 kgs of fish. Wow. What, what do you mean near the ocean? Yeah, so this is, this is weird. So they are a saltwater fish, uh -huh. right? So the adults are out there in the ocean swimming around. Yeah. And when they, um, when they want to, like, give birth to all these little fish, I don't know how fish give birth, but they basically take the, the little fish to the sort of inner 
water. Mm -hmm. So it usually is sort of mangrove swamps or, you know, um, lakes close by the shore where you kind of get a bit of salt water, but not a lot. And then the fish kind of start growing up a bit and then they go out back into the ocean. Okay. So that's a really important part of this story. So it's a little like salmon swimming upstream to go spawn. Yeah, exactly. Okay. It's, they, they go somewhere else to spawn and then they come back into the ocean. So these um, Nauruans back, you know, pre-contact, they, they noticed that this was happening and they noticed that these fish were monsters when they grew up. And they thought, hey, cheeky bit of food here. I like this. So let's go geographical here. So... Um, Nauru is this round oval island, and if you hike into the island, and we're talking two or three hours into the middle of the island, mm. there's this massive, well, massive, this lagoon called Buada Lagoon. And it's about 100 meters wide, 500 meters long, but it's very shallow the whole way through. So it's only two meters at its like, deepest point. Wow, okay. So what's weird about this is Nauru doesn't have any streams it doesn't have any like flowing water or anything like that so this is just what do they call it like a lens or something yeah like it's it's like brackish water is how they describe oh, it okay so it's this two meter deep quite big but not you know not very deep not and kind of just a weird water place a lagoon now what they realized is Okay, we can go into the uh, to the ocean and we can catch a whole load of these little like lava fish things, mm -hmm. the tiny centimeter long ones, and we'll put them into a little coconut. Um, this is how they they carried them, and we can hike into this lagoon into mm -hmm. the middle of their island and put all our fish into the lagoon. Into the lagoon. And so this is the this is the weird thing, right? So it's all very well putting fish into a lagoon, but uh, not all of them are going to survive. In fact, most of them didn't because the water differences, mm. the weird, you know, whether there was salt or no salt. Was there any food for them? Um, I think there was, yeah. Okay. So it's, I think there was, it was fine. It, it depended on the s bottom of the lake or the lagoon, depending on how much food there was. Okay. But basically, as soon as they lasted a little while, then they realized that these little fish were going to become. They weren't going to become the super massive sea-going milkfish, but they were going to become like sub... Big enough. Yeah, big enough to eat, big enough to have an absolute feed-off. So this was basically the start of, um, of aquaculture. Wow. Fish farming. They're farming fish. Yeah. But actually getting the larva is quite a tricky process. So you have to go down into the ocean and you have to like whip the water with this like big whipping stick and then you whip all the like little lava up and then you get your net open. And <laughs> I, I don't understand this. What are you whipping? I don't know. The whipping the water, I guess, like to bring up the lava. They're attracted to it. Well, I, I like, guess, like fly fishing. I don't know. I don't know what fly fishing is. I don't is. actually know either. I, I'm, not a, I'm not a fish of them. But anyway, your point is that we that they whip up the fish and they put them in these little coconuts and then they've got to walk two or three hours yeah. into, into the interior. So say, Jason, that you've done all this work to get your fish and you go up to the big lagoon and you've, done, you've walked two, three hours in with your little coconuts full of lava. Do you really want to just throw them in the lagoon and everyone can eat them? 
No, I guess not. Like you've worked, you've worked hard for this. You want to put them in your own section of the lagoon. Did they have its section? <laughs> yeah. 43 sections. 43. And this was really cool. So this actually is like modern fish farming. 100%. So they got um, coconut um, logs and coconut fronds, and they, they stuck them into the ground in the water, and they weighed, them, weighed everything down with rocks, and they segmented this lagoon into 43 little sections. With, like, little fences. Yeah, with basically little fences. Wow. And each family had their own section. It was passed down through the mother's line of the family, mm-hmm. so you kind of kept your... Yeah, they were a matrilineal society. Oh, I love it. Yeah. So they each had their little section, and when, you know, it got to the point where you saw that your fish had grown big enough, you went and... Um, you essentially caught them all. Apparently, catching them was quite a process. Um, you kind of, same sort of thing. I guess you walked through and whipped them all up and caught them all with nets. But they, they once they're quite big, they fly out of the water. <laughs> and um, there was a story of one chief losing his eye. What? Because one of the fish came and, like, stabbed his eye. But, hear me out... When you've done all this, you've put all that work in and you've got your little pond and your, your, your fences up, you don't really want anyone messing with your, your fish. Yep. So they used to booby trap Whoa. their own like areas. And it was things like um, they would put bone or wooden sharp points into the sand to stop people coming and bathing. Oh. Um, it was like it was. They they basically booby trapped their own places. So preventing people from stepping in. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it was a, it was an incredibly serious process, and what was amazing is it worked a treat. It worked an absolute treat. Wow. And then contact came, and um, somebody screwed it up. Um, mm. As always seems to happen, they introduced another fish into the the lagoon in order to eat the mosquito larva. That other fish, which apparently wasn't very tasty, um, kind of took all the resources, all the food from the milkfish, and then they had this massive problem of the other fish taking away from the milkfish. As it happens. Mm. And then, of course, you know what they decided to do? Because they're really clever, these, um, these, <laughs> these Europeans post-contact, is they decided to poison the entire lake to get rid of the other fish. Yeah, let's just eliminate it. Everything. Just, yeah, and um, it didn't really work. Yeah, of course not. Um, and uh, it's kind of screwed up the whole aquaculture of that lagoon. Wow, that's a real shame. Well, fabulous, Jason. We've kind of uh, covered some pretty juicy topics in Nauru. You've been listening to The Pacific Drift. Thank you to our production team, Tim, the artwork by Becky and Jason, music by Jazar Out of School, And we want to acknowledge the Research Impact Award from the University of Auckland. Thank you for listening.